Uh, my very first PhD seminar in the year 2004 was a course called Nicene Christianity, in which we, we did this in-depth uh, theological and exegetical and historical and political analysts, uh, analysis excuse me, of the Nicene Creed and its ecclesiological and cultural impact on not only the fourth century, but really all the centuries that have come after. And as part of that course, each student was to choose a phrase of the creed to research and in turn write on. And that was your, the, the product of all that work was one paper and that was your one grade uh, for the course. And my choice was the phrase, one holy Catholic and apostolic church. And I focused on the question of uh, church unity and whether or not groups like say the Catholics and the Lutherans could overcome their serious doctrinal and institutional differences. And in preparation for for this sermon, I went back and I reread uh, some of my research and my outlines and, and parts of the final paper, and I am thoroughly amazed at how much information I have forgotten over uh, the last 18 years. Uh, I was like, wow, I really read Cyril of Jerusalem? How about that? But I still argue, or at least agree with what I argued all those years ago. The Christian unity rises and falls on Jesus and nothing else. On Jesus and nothing else. And that may seem, I guess, obvious, but when there are thousands, thousands of different denominations in the United States alone, you have to wonder about why Christians are so divided. I mean, just think about it this way. How many churches are in the vicinity of, of us right now? You know, unity is not found in institutional uniformity. So Presbyterians don't have the market on what counts as Christian, and neither does any other Christian tradition. Now, of course, I would clearly argue that some Christian traditions are better than others, I'm, I'm very pleased to be Presbyterian and I'm not anything else. Even so, Presbyterians are not the true church. We are part of the true church. And what makes us part of that church is Jesus Christ alone. So what gives us meaning, our reason for existing as a church bound together by vows is not a building. And I love this building, but it's not a building. It's not a style of clothing or worship or music. It's not a set of secular political concerns or anything remotely like that. Now, all those things matter. All those things matter, but that's not what binds us together. No, it's like what the disciples learned in Matthew 16. It's the confession that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. And by implication, that means he permeates and defines everything we say and do. And of course, it must be said that as Peter and the disciples learn, we do not generate that confession of Jesus on our own. We did not come to that by our own logic or our own thinking or by just sussing it all out. No, our confession was given to us by God and is the right response to Jesus's lordship over all things. Well, that being said, this week we continue in our series in the book of John, and we're looking at just two verses in chapter 17. 
I found as going through John that his prose can seem simple, but it is loaded. It is just loaded with reference and meaning. And we're looking at just two verses, verses 22 and 23. Let me read them for us. This is Jesus praying. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to Christ for it. Let me pray for us as we enter into this time. Heavenly Father, we pray simply that we would see Jesus, that we would not merely value him, but we would love him because you have loved us so deeply with such compassion and such patience. You have given us life forever with you. So to that end, we pray the spirit would be in and amongst us all, uniting us together with our Lord as one people with hearts that are set on you. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as I worked through this passage, uh, two questions kept coming to my mind that I think are, are useful for structuring our time together. First one is, what does Jesus mean when he says glory? And in turn, why does this glory lead to not just him desiring, but really pushing for and expecting the unity of his people? Well, let's start with that question of glory. Jesus says in verse 22 that the glory that the Father has given to him, he has given to his disciples, which in turn the implication is to us as well. And typically when we think of glory, we have in mind, I don't know, things like like trophies or honor or championship rings or parades. And while there is absolutely something to that with how the Father glorifies Jesus after his resurrection and what we try to do, in our worship of him, that's not exactly what John has in mind right here. So if you take chapters 13 through 17 that we've been looking at for, I don't know, five five or so months as a whole, and and even then, just put it in the context of the book of John, the glory given to Jesus, and in turn what he gives to his disciples can be summarized, I think, in three distinct but obviously related things. The word, the mission, and the spirit. So as we've seen in past weeks, Jesus gave the words he received from the Father to his disciples. That's verses six through eight. But Jesus did not merely receive words and then give them to his people. Jesus, as John says right from the beginning, is the word of God. So he's not merely a person who speaks God's word as many prophets before him did, or as even I do as a pastor. No, he is the one through whom and for whom all things were made. He is the word that brings creation into existence, and he fully reveals who God is in a way that no prophet or pastor ever could. The prophets spoke about Jesus, and they looked forward to him. There is no one like Jesus. He is fully God and fully man. He is the embodiment, the enfleshment of God and his word. He is the word made flesh. And Jesus equates the glory of God with his word, just as David does in Psalm 19, where David says that both creation and God's law are together expressions of God's glory, revealing his character by way of, 
of his word. In fact, that was my prayer of adoration, just Psalm 19. What a beautiful, perfect psalm that is. And for good reason, you know, Moses ties Genesis 1 and Exodus 20, which is the giving of the Ten Commandments, together. Literarily, they are tied together with a series of ten words. That's not random. We are meant to take them together. And the reason is the Ten Commandments, just like the creation of the universe in Genesis 1, come into existence through God speaking. It's through his word, and those words reveal him. So we are accustomed to thinking of words as cheap. You know, a little less talk, a little more action. But the reality is most of the ways in which we affect the world and each other is through words. Words change things. Words can bring life. Words can kill. Words absolutely matter. It's why when Jesus says in Matthew 12, the good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Well, if that doesn't strike terror into the deepest parts of your soul and drive you to seek God's mercy, I don't know what else I can say to you. And the question is, why should it terrify you? Because your words, words that we treat that are so cheap, that we just throw away, that we think don't matter, they do, and they reveal who we are. They reveal the deepest parts of your soul. And, and they show what we actually treasure. And here's the thing. We can't help. We can't help but speak. We can't help but reveal what we love. Words absolutely matter. Words are a kind of action. Our words will be judged. But by the word of God, Jesus Christ, we can be saved. So this same glory, this same word, Jesus gave to his disciples. So on the one hand, the word clearly refers to what Jesus taught. But on the other hand, the word is Jesus himself, which is why we live by his teaching. So we, we don't take the Sermon on the Mount seriously because we think it's a nice strategy for a better life. That's how you approach Buddha, right? If you take the Sermon on the Mount seriously, it can actually make things very difficult for you. No, we take the Sermon on the Mount seriously, not just because it's wisdom, but because Jesus is the Christ and all of life depends on him. So if Jesus treasures this word and gave it to us, we're supposed to treasure it too. But the reality is, and this has been humanity's perennial problem from the beginning, is that we are bombarded by different voices and words that compete for our attention and promise a better life than the one on offer with God. And we often believe them. So, for example, over the last 25 years, really going back to the beginning of, of seminary, you know, I, I've been to a lot of funerals or spoken uh, with people who had recently lost loved ones. And I, I've taken notice over that time. And it's uncanny how often I've heard Christians begin with Jesus or the gospel 
or the resurrection, but really in a moment, they wind up taking it all back. You know, I'm sure old Bob is enjoying a nice walk with his favorite dog, Lucky, right now. You've all heard it. It's, it's meant to be, I think, a comforting thought. It's meant to be a pleasant thought in a time when we're, we're really uncomfortable or, or perhaps hurting. It's pretty rare to hear people say, I'm sure old Bob is looking at the face of Jesus and can hardly take it in and is enjoying what David longed to enjoy in Psalm 23. He's in the house of the Lord forever, y'all. You ever heard that? We got to be asking the question, why is it we don't long for what David longed for? Why are we looking for something to comfort us that David wasn't looking for? You know, in one verse in the life to come, God is not present, but our favorite things are. It's meant to be, of course, hopeful and and comforting, but if you really stop to think about it, it's hopeless. In the other version, Jesus is the most incredible thing there is, and there is life with him forever. So what accounts for the difference is what word people have treasured and where we have looked for comfort and meaning. For so many Christians, we like Jesus, but we don't think he quite gets at what we think we really need. Well, one of the things that Jesus repeats is that the mission he received from the Father, he has in turn given to his disciples and by implication to us. That's verses 12 through 20. Jesus came into the world to make his father's name known. That is, Jesus came to reveal who God is so that humanity might find life and reconciliation with God in him. And he, in turn, gives us the privilege of following him in his footsteps. It's what it means to be salt and light. Of course, this does not mean that we can save anyone. No, we don't. We witness to the one who saves So because we have been reconciled to God, we now have the privilege of bringing his name to bear everywhere we go. See, humans are image bearers. I feel like I need to say that all the time. We are image bearers. We are like, in a certain sense, just follow me here, we're like little statues or icons that point to God who by our very existence give witness to the one who made us bearing his name everywhere we go. It's why taking the name of the Lord in vain is a commandment that covers everything we do and say and not just a small set of taboo words. It's also why Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth is not only one of the most philosophically deep statements there is, if you reject this truth, you can't possibly rightly understand what a human is, including yourself. Humans were made to be missionaries. Either we will seek to make God's name known or we will seek our own name or our tribe's name or or whatever. As humans reconciled to God, we are intended to live out Christ wherever we find ourselves. So we are always, whether you like it or not, we are always and everywhere missionaries. So just as there is never a time in which you are not a Christian, there is never a time in which you do not bear his name and image him. In every relationship, every place, that's the calling. 
Whatever your job is, whatever your marriage status is, whatever your address or social standing or economic class, that's the calling. And I think for, for many of us, this sounds so heavy, right? This sounds so heavy. And part of the reason it sounds heavy is because it doesn't sound very fun. And in a certain sense, you know what? That's true. American culture is structured to make the pursuit of yourself the highest good. And so to sacrifice your time or your energy or your resources for someone else or to be defined by this God and his ways, well, it sounds like hell. And to be sure, Jesus says the world will hate us because it hated him. But for us, that, that hatred doesn't typically show up in persecution, though there can be very real opposition to us. It most often shows up in the temptation to deny Christ, his word, and his mission. I mean, would we rather be cool? Or would we rather be faithful? Would we rather fit in? Or would we rather be faithful? Would we rather be rich and have a pleasant life? Or would we rather be faithful? Just fill in the blank and ask the question, would I rather this or would I rather be faithful? You know, like Jesus, we are to count the calling to mission not as a burden, not as this heavy, awful thing that we must do that's just a killjoy, but as a privilege. I mean, let me just quickly walk us through Matthew 11, verses 25 through 30, where Jesus talks about this. He starts off by saying, I thank you. This is a prayer. This is Jesus. I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things at his, his teaching from the wise and understanding, so think of like the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, that sort of thing, and revealed them to little children. So think his disciples and those who followed him. And this is exactly what he's been talking about and praying for in John 17. Then with verse 26, he says, Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my father and no one knows the son except the father and no one knows the father except the son and anyone to whom the son chooses to reveal him. Again, that's John 17 all over again. When people question whether the gospels line up, they do. You just have to know the literature and the, the style of prose. They absolutely line up. You cannot know God apart from the son, period. That's the Christian claim. Keep going. Verse 28. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Just stop and think about our times. Who do you know? Who do you know that is carefree and lighthearted and has no problems? No. I say this often because it's true, and I want to encourage you. The cases or the levels of anxiety and depression and sadness and stress are skyrocketing, and they have been for a long time. If you feel like you're alone in feeling those things, or you feel like you're alone in your, your isolation, or just your fear or whatever, you are not. This is across the culture right now. Everyone feels this to some degree, some more than others. Jesus says, come to me all who labor and heavy laden. That's everyone you know. And I will give you rest. Here's how he describes that rest. Take my yoke 
upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy, my burden is light. So notice that Jesus assumes everyone wears a yoke. The American assumption is to be free is to not have one, and they're dying trying. No, everyone wears a yoke. It may come as a shock to you, but humans were created to be servants. That's what we are. We bear someone else's image. And we will either serve the Most High God and have life and can find rest. And by the way, that's what the Sabbath is. It's practiced rest for the life to come. Or we will serve ourselves or some other God and have death. Either way, we are not little gods. We are servants. So when Jesus says his yoke is easy and his burden is light, he doesn't mean that life will be easy or without pain. What you're feeling may be normal, but is not what God intended. It is not. It's not what he meant for humanity. And you need only look at his own life or Job's life or the early Christians in the book of Acts to see how an easy life that is pain-free is not what, what God promises here. It's just not. No, one way or another, the world will come after you. Sometimes that means persecution or harassment or just the structure of living in a what I think is an inhumane society. But sometimes, like Joseph or David or Solomon, it is the opportunity to pursue our selfish desires. And sometimes those opportunities are overwhelming. See, humans are meant to be missionaries because we're servants. The question is, who do we serve? The true God and his word or something or someone else? Well, I think the glory Jesus also has in mind involves the giving of the Spirit. And this is often overlooked by Presbyterians, I think. Jesus was glorified by the giving of the Spirit at his baptism, and he in turn promises the gift of the Spirit to his people, which is a gift we enjoy right now. We enjoy it right now. We are indwelled by the Spirit, and through the Spirit, the triune God makes his home in us. I know it probably doesn't feel like it right now, but God's promise is that he is dwelling in and amongst us right now through his spirit. As Paul says in Ephesians chapter one, verses 13 and 14, in Jesus, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So the gift of the Holy Spirit that you have now is the down payment on the life to come with God forever. You have the inheritance. You have the taste of it now. It's all yours. It's coming. It's like receiving, I don't know, the first 100 million of a $1 billion inheritance. You already have life. You are already rich, even as there is so much more to come. Now, the gift of the Spirit doesn't look like much to the world, if it even looks like anything to them, but to, to us who are being saved, who have been given eyes to see and ears to hear, who know his presence, the Spirit is a treasure. But like with rival words and, and rival missions, it is possible, even as Christians, to be filled with the wrong spirit. And this is a continual battle within us, both, both individually, but also as a group too. So for example, Paul famously says in Romans, 
that we have been given the spirit of sonship and not the spirit of slavery. Now, why say this if there's not the continual temptation to run back to slavery as if life is found there? In 1 Corinthians, he says, we have been given the spirit of God, not the spirit of the world. We are temples of the Holy Spirit and united in one spirit with God himself together. That's nuts. That's crazy talk, but that's what we have in Christ. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, we carry this treasure, this word, this life in the spirit in jars of clay. That is, in bodies that are marred by sin, perishable and waiting for resurrection. It's incredible. It's incredible that God was make his homes, his home in jars of clay like us. In Galatians 5, Paul teaches us to walk by the Spirit and not by the flesh, to respond to the work of the Spirit in us and not to the ways that lead to death. Ephesians 2, Paul again tells us that we have the Spirit of God versus the Spirit of the sons of disobedience. Ephesians 5, Paul compares drunkenness as a form of being filled by a false spirit as opposed to being filled by the Holy Spirit. It's why liquor used to be called, still is sometimes, a spirit. When you're consumed by a false spirit, as alcohol can clearly do, you live by that spirit. I could keep going all day in Paul. This is all over Paul. It's why also David, after his assault on Bathsheba and his murder of Uriah, longs for a right spirit to be put back into him. He knows he has given himself over to false spirits and his evil desires, and he has utterly destroyed lives. Life in the spirit as Paul hammers, I mean, he hammers this over and over again throughout all his letters is one of the greatest gifts we have been given. It too, like the word and and the mission, is a treasure and is something glorious given to us by God. So Jesus' point that he has given us the same glory that he has, a glory that is found in his word, in his mission, in his spirit. And all three of those things together should lead us to the thing that he desires for his community, this, this community that he is building, and that desires that we would be one. What Jesus wants is not like Babel. It's not uniformity built in bricks and symbolized in towers. It's unity of heart set on him. If you look at, and we could do, I could just dump Bible verses on you, but if you just look at Ephesians 2 or James 1 or Galatians 6 or the entirety of 1 Corinthians, it's an exposition on Jesus' desire for us to literally and practically live this out in real communities with real people. And I feel like I have to say real people because so much of what we do with community is not. If you love the word Jesus has given you and the mission he has given you and the spirit he has given you, then you will also love the people he has given you. Now, when I originally wrote that that paper for that class all those years ago, my concern was really kind of large scale ecumenical divides, like say Catholic versus Protestant and all that. And I do think when Jesus prays that we would be perfectly one, He's looking forward to the time when things like denominations are obsolete because we will be perfectly one in Christ in the new heavens and the new earth. 
And what Jesus prays here is for his people, his people to treasure the word he has given to them and in turn the mission he has given to them and by implication the people he has given to them. That's what he wants for you. So when people say, wow, what is God's will for my life? There you go. That's it right there. But then we think, that's not the answer I'm looking for. I really want to know which job I'm supposed to have or which person I'm supposed to marry. You need to be asking the question, why do I think Jesus isn't answering the question I want? Does that make sense? We need to be on board with the questions or the things he desires to make sense of all these other things. But like with rival words and rival missions and rival spirits, we are also tempted to find what we think are better communities somewhere else. And usually we go looking for communities that fit with our tastes or politics or values or hobbies and that benefit us in some way. But once they no longer benefit us, we move on. We treat community as if it is expendable or just one more thing off the menu of choices to make our lives feel better because that's just what Americans do. It's why people are obsessed with with social media, even as it is not an actual community, any more than playing Madden on an Xbox is playing real football. But the very real human community that God has given to us, the flesh and blood one, the one that can benefit us the most, the one that has nothing to do with my hobbies or interests and that can actually fight against my selfish desires, the one where if we, if we came pursuing each other as God wants us to, even just a little bit, it can bear witness to the world that Jesus came into the world and loves the world. Well, that community is the one we typically take the least seriously. It's expendable. It comes last. I mean, think about it. Just put yourself in this position. What's easier to give up? Social media, whichever one you like most. I don't care. Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Reddit, Pinterest. I guess YouTube counts. There's a thousand. It's Snapchat, FaceSnap, I don't know. Whatever they are, right? All of them. There's a thousand of them. Which would be easier to give up? Social media or your church? We know what the right answer is, but what is the truthful one? The typical American spends hours a day on his phone with much of that time tied up on on whatever platform. The typical Christian attends church two times or less a month for maybe an hour at a time. So it's worth asking if Jesus longs for us not just to show up to church for worship, which, of course, that's, that's deeply important, but to pursue each other with this same sort of love that he and the Father have for each other. If he thinks this is good for us, if he thinks this kind of community will cause the world to take notice, then we probably ought to be pursuing this community. You know, everyone listens to some word. Everyone is a missionary for something. Everyone is filled by some spirit. Everyone pursues some community. No exceptions. That's every human you know. And it's worth asking which ones define us. Now, I'm fully sympathetic to how hard and strange life is for us in this country. I think for as materially prosperous as we are, and I think that kind of blinds us to how hard life is actually for us. The structure of our society 
is inhumane. I believe that. I believe it is inhumane because it drives us to pursue ourselves above everything else. It's as though we are 400 million individual little towers of Babel. And I know just how hard it is to resist all these things I'm talking about, how hard it is to choose the way of the Lord, how hard it is to choose to prioritize God over your own time. As someone put it to me a few months ago, I have this effect on people sometimes when I show up, I make them feel guilty just by my presence. Uh, But the man said to me, I know everything you're saying is true. And I agree with it. I've just gotten so used to doing what I want to do that it's hard to go back. And, And I would say, it's not merely hard, it actually feels like death to do it. And I totally get it. That's how I treated my time in seminary. You know, that, that when I was training to be a pastor, it's exactly how I treated my time. And now that I'm a pastor, well, I'm paid to be disciplined with this stuff, which makes, frankly, my life, I think, easier than yours. And I thoroughly admit that over the last year or so, I've been frustrated by this kind of attitude. And sometimes that's come out in my sermons or men's studies or private conversations. And you know what? I'm sorry. I'm so sorry for being a jerk. It's not right, and that's my sin. That's me losing patience with people that God loves. And no pastor should ever be like that. And it's not, you know, that I think attendance is the goal, as if attendance in itself is what matters. I mean, are we handing out perfect attendance buttons? Are we putting like the the sign on the wall like some of you grew up with, with how much money was given this week and how many people attended? No, no, that is not the point. That's why we don't push a thousand programs on you and insist that you be in this building for 20 hours a week or whatever. We don't want that. That's just, that's heavy. I don't want that. No, it's that these things, his word, his mission, his spirit, this fellowship are good gifts from God that he wants us to treasure and he gives them for our good. So I I want to confirm my commitment to you because perhaps my attitude has come across over the last months and you might wonder, is our pastor for us? I promise I am. I am for you. I'm your biggest fan. I'm pulling for you. I promise. And I I promise to continue to deliver the best sermons and teaching that I can. Some are better than others. Some go way long, and I'm sorry. The leadership of of this church, I can tell you, will continue to offer Sunday school and Sunday evenings and men's studies and whatever you need, no matter what the attendance is like. And frankly, you know, even though our attendance has been down, I've actually really enjoyed the time. That's the irony. I've really enjoyed the time with people who have come, and I want everyone to enjoy that. Sunday evenings are so sweet. They're so sweet. I just love that time together, and I want everyone to enjoy that. These things are here for you if you want them. If you want them, they're here for you. Come take part in them. Well, my hope is your pastor. It really hasn't changed since I showed up in 2013. And by the way, it's been a long time. I want us to be a God-built community that grows in maturity with Christ over time at his pace. That's it. So I invite you, please join with me in praying for that. 
that we would be that kind of Christ-built, spirit-led people who loves God's word and his mission and his spirit, and in turn, we seek to love each other well. Well, let me pray for us to that end. Heavenly Father, we pray simply that Christ would be glorified. We pray that you would work in our hearts and our minds, that we would treasure what you have given to us, that we would see that they are good, and that we would in turn walk in your ways. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.